Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cross Point. Uh, my name is David Young. I am one of the elders here at Cross Point, and I will be preaching this morning. Um, first of all, happy Mother's Day um, to all the mothers that are here. Um, this morning in Sunday school, it was probably an appropriate day to, to start a series on parenting that will run, I believe, through Father's Day. So it's kind of that perfect window to talk about parenting. Um, and this morning we looked at parenting from infancy to preschool. And one of the joys of parenting toddlers is being able to work through their disappointments and frustrations in a calm and logical manner that they always have. Of course that's not true. Um, as children are developing, they're learning to cope with the fact that the world is not always the way we want it to be. And that's a tough realization. Um, I have a couple examples that I want to go through this morning um, of disappointments for children, and this will tie into our sermon. Um, so if we could get to the first slide, Jeff. So this is our first image of a toddler who was upset because she couldn't go inside the dishwasher. <laughs> a very logical reason to be upset. Next, uh, we have a baby crying because the mother refused to switch the sun off so the pumpkin would glow. <laughs> Another very logical request. There's many times where I wish I could switch the sun off so I could take a nap, but alas, we can't. Um, this next child wanted ravioli for dinner, so the parents made ravioli for dinner, and she did not want ravioli for dinner. Um, this poor girl ran out of toes to paint. <laughs> um, and this poor boy, his mother wouldn't let him eat a battery for breakfast. <laughs> what a mean mother. <laughs> um, I told him he had to stop biting the cat. <laughs> I would expect this to be the face after a child bites a cat, <laughs> what happens, but. Um, oh, back one. This child wanted to get on the bus, the bus that was on the TV. <laughs> and my personal favorite, he suddenly wanted his cycling backpack, which I didn't take to the park because it does not exist. Mothers often bear the brunt of their children's tantrums and discontentments. For some mothers here, these pictures bring back vivid memories. For others, they're a very present reality. And for some here, this may be a little something to look forward to. Um, and as we can laugh at how ridiculous these images are, I think 1 Corinthians 11.6 uh, speaks well to this situation where Paul states, As such were some of you. We were all once like this. And today, even now, no matter how old we get, we can still struggle with discontentment. Um, it might not result in us lying face down on the floor of a grocery store crying, but we have different ways now of coping and dealing with uh, discontentment in our lives. So today we're going to look at 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 27. And as you are turning to 1 Samuel 10, we're going to read through this passage. I want to encourage you to look for people who are discontent with the way things are and see if you can pick up on how they respond. So again, we are turning to 1 Samuel chapter 10, starting in verse 17. 
Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distress. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves to the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself amongst the baggage. And they ran and looked for him and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. He wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for the things that you have to show us this morning from your word, that even a story of a man hiding amongst baggage, because it is in your word, has some truth for us today that we can glean, that we can look at. And I pray that as we look at your word together, you would um, help us be conformed more to the image of your son, that we would see how you have called us to live in the world you have created, and that we would live in a way that honors and glorifies you. In your name. Amen. So as we look at this passage, we're going to talk about discontentment. The title, Unholy Discontentment, is a little bit of a play on a book called Holy uh, Discontentment, which is talking about righteous ways to be discontent in life. So to talk about discontentment, first we're going to talk about different types of discontentment. Um, after that, we'll talk about some of the motivation for discontentment, a response to discontentment, and then we'll look at a better way. So if you're looking for an outline, that's it. I'll say it again for those who want to write it down. So first we're going to look at types of discontentment. Second, we will look at the motivation of discontentment. Third, a response to discontentment. And finally, a better way. There's no alliteration this week. Um, I didn't have time to give Nick a call to get what the alliteration would be for these, these points, but I'm sure he would have put it together. So first, the types of discontentment. So who is discontent in this passage? Well, to start off, Israel is discontent. And we have seen this from the past, I think, three or four weeks as we've been on this journey from Israel wanting a king to Israel finally getting their king. 
Um, so Saul, Samuel brings them together to pick out this king, and the way that he picks out the king is by uh, casting lots, which is a way they would seek to understand God and his divine plan. Now, last couple of weeks, we've already seen that Saul has been anointed king, that Samuel went and found him, and that he was the one that the Lord chose. And this is a public way of letting everybody know that this is the one that the Lord has chosen. The, the casting of lots um, is a confirmation of the previous anointing. That way the people of Israel wouldn't been like, wouldn't have just responded, well, this is just who Samuel wanted. We're not going to follow him. We're going to set up our own king. This shows that it was God's plan. So Israel's discontent with not having a king. Saul is discontent with being named the king. Last week, after he gets the word from Samuel he's going to be king, he goes back to his uncle, they find the donkeys, and then his uncle asks him, what did Samuel tell you? And Saul leaves out this fact that he has been anointed to be the next king. And now that it is this time for his public appointment of king, kingship, he hides. This is not something that he wants. Um, this hiding reflects his reaction throughout um, the story of him eventually becoming king. And then at the end of the story, there are some who the Bible calls worthless fellows, and these are discontent with Saul being the one named king. I have a feeling we would feel this way too if the leader of our country was appointed and we went to look for him and he was hiding because he didn't want to be the leader. Um, if we just had, instead of electing a president, we just had a random draw and the person that was appointed was often hiding in the mountains somewhere in Wyoming. I think we'd be like, this person's probably not the right one to be king for us. And that's how these worthless fellows felt. Um, so what does it mean to be discontent? The definition that we're going to work from this morning is discontentment is a desire for things to be different than the way they are. A desire for things to be different than they are. Now, is discontentment always a bad thing? It's not. In fact, there are many things that we should be discontent with. We should be discontent with sin in our life. We should be discontent with when people around us are being taken advantage of. We should be discontent with corruption and position of power. We should be discontent with a lot of the things that are broken and wrong in the world around us. And this is a good thing to be discontent. And this is what we will call in our time together a holy discontentment, H-O-L-Y. Meaning that is a discontentment for things to be the way that God designed them to be when they aren't. The challenge for us can be recognizing when our discontentment that lives inside of us is either a holy discontentment for something of God or if it's motivated by self-serving desires, a selfish discontentment or an unholy discontentment. And these are the two types of discontentment that we'll talk about, but we'll mostly focus on the second time, second type, the unholy discontentment that is driven by self-serving desires. So what causes us to be discontent? Let's look now at some of the motivation of discontentment. Discontentment can come from comparison, first of all. This is what we see with uh, the Israelites. They begin to compare themselves to the nations around them, and they notice the Moabites have a king, the Ammonites have a king, the Amorites have a king, the Ishbishites have a king, all these ites have kings, and us, the Israelites, we do not have a king. And they begin to think, 
all of our struggles, all of our challenges with being ruled over by these foreign people, by being conquered, by dealing with the Philistines and everyone else, they all have kings and we don't. If we had a king, that would be somebody who could save us. If you notice the beginning of the passage, God introduces himself as the one who brought them out of Egypt, who brought them into the land, who rescued them from the nations that surrounded them. And they reject the kingship of God because they want to be like the nations around them. Comparison is a very easy source of discontentment within our own hearts. All we really have to do is wake up and turn on our phones or go outside and look around us And we immediately, for some reason, start comparing to one another. It's the whole grass is greener. That's the picture, if you can't tell, of comparing. The grass is always greener. We might come to church and see someone who appears to be having a better morning than us because we are tired, we couldn't get out of bed, it was a struggle last night, we didn't get any sleep, and here comes someone just skipping along with a smile on their face, and we're like, oh, they probably got a full 10 hours last night. And we begin comparing and getting discontent in our heart. Our hearts jump to the comparison game, and the um, famous quote is that comparison is a thief of joy, and it is. Anytime that we compare ourselves to others, there's only two possible responses, discontentment because we don't have what they have, or pride because we find that we are better than them, or so we think. It's never good. It never leads to a positive outcome. So the first thing leading to discontentment is comparison. The second thing is that discontentment can be motivated by fear, and this is what we see in Saul. At a basic level, this is part of our natural wiring from when we're very young. When we're uncomfortable with our surroundings and something is happening around us that causes us to fear, we get very uncomfortable, discontent in our circumstance, and we naturally want to fight or flight. We want to change the circumstance. We want to do something because we are not content with just letting this 800-pound bear run at us. We want to change our circumstances when we're in a dangerous situation because of fear. And so sometimes fear can lead to a good discontentment that causes us to change things so we don't get hurt. But other times, we can kind of create a fear response in our own mind to circumstances, especially when we get pushed outside of our comfort zone. God might lead us, like Saul, to do something or to be in a position which is not comfortable for us. It can become very easy for us to get discontent, to get squirmy on the inside, afraid, and to want to hide. Saul hides among the luggage out of fear. Now, that would be kind of a toddler response. We probably could have had a picture of some kid running and hiding in a pile of clothes or something like that because they were afraid or they were uncomfortable with the spotlight being on them. And and we also allow fear and shame to cause us to hide. We'll talk a little bit more about what that hiding looks like um, as we look at the responses So first we had comparison can lead us to discontentment, fear can lead us to discontentment, and finally discontentment can be motivated by our own self-serving expectations. I think the following story illustrates this point. There's a woman who woke up up one morning, she turns to her husband and says, honey, last night I had a dream that you got me a gold necklace. What do you think that means? He said, I don't know, but Valentine's Day is coming soon. Then you'll know. A few nights later, she woke up again after having a dream, and she said, Honey, this time I dreamed that you gave me a pearl necklace. What do you think it means? And he said, You'll know on Valentine's Day. 
the morning of Valentine's Day woke up and she again or came and she woke up again and began to tell her husband about her dream. She said, This time I dreamed that you bought me a diamond necklace. What do you think it means? Honey, be patient. You'll know tonight, he said. That evening, her husband came home with a package and gave it to her his wife. Delighted, she opened it and found a book titled The Meaning of Dreams. I have a feeling she might have been a little bit disappointed, but perhaps in that book somewhere was the answer to what did it mean that she dreamed that she was receiving all these necklaces. Um, the woman in this fictitious story was not very content with her Valentine's Day gift. This is often the case when we set unrealistic and self-centered expectations about something. Some of the men of Israel were hoping for a king who would save them. They wanted a king that would look a certain way, that would act a certain way, and Saul was not that man. That's why they responded, how can this man save us? They had built up expectations that the king would give them everything that they desired. In similar ways, we can look for other things to save us from our troubles. We can place our hope in things other than God to give us what we want. We might think that more money will save us from the, our problems, but what is the saying about more money? More money leads to more problems. Yes. Or maybe we look for a new job to save us from our problems in the world, or we might look to people. We might look to a spouse, children, friends, other loved ones to save us from our discontentment, um, to give us what we want to fulfill our self-centered desires. And every time we will find, eventually, our self-serving expectations aren't met. We might find for a while that these false gods, these false things that we put our hope in, meet our needs. Things that might go well is kind of like the honeymoon phase, phase of marriage, where everything seems like it's going to be great. And then a couple years in, that fades away. And if you still are looking for your spouse to save you, you'll be extremely disappointed. So we've looked now at these motivating factors. We've seen comparison, fear, and self-serving expectations can lead us to be discontent. Now let's think about how do we respond when we are discontent. The first response that we see in our passage is that we demand something. And this is Israel's response. They demanded a king. They wanted to be like the nations around them, and so they made their demand. This response is the fleshly, take things into my own hand, get the job done myself response. It may not be this way for you, but I can tell for me there's like a switch that flips when I get frustrated or flustered with a situation, um, whether that's with work and people aren't getting things done the way I want it, or at home the girls aren't cleaning up their toys fast enough, and I'm just like, that's it, I'm going to do it myself. We are not taking three hours to clean up the toys before bedtime. I will take 30 seconds and get all these toys into the basket. Or at work, when somebody's not doing what you want, and you say, I'll just step in and I'll take over. And rather than teaching and training, we allow this fleshly response to get in the way, and we just take charge and get things done the way we want. Or like the wife who said, there's two ways to load a dishwasher, my husband's way and the right way. And every time he would load the dishwasher, I have to come behind him and do it the right way. We can get so flustered when things don't go the way we want that we just step in and take charge. Now, sometimes this can be okay. There may be a situation where things are floundering and you need to step up and take leadership. And again, this is kind of that gray area. How do you decide between when is our discontentment leading us towards a good action and when is our discontentment leading us towards fleshly, controlling, self-centered action? 
The real problem arises when we get frustrated with God and how things are going in our life, and we decide to step in and take control. I remember having a season of life like this for me right after I graduated from college. I found out that life wasn't going the way that I wanted. I had gotten a job, but things just seemed like they were moving slow, and so I kind of, in my mind, I don't think I would have been able to verbalize this at the time, but I'm like, you know what, I'm going to move things forward, and so I'm like, I'm going to get a house, I'm going to find a wife, and we're going to get this life on the road the way that I wanted it to be. And so I started making some very quick decisions because I just was tired of waiting on God. Thankfully, God, in his grace, a few hours before I was going to sign a contract to purchase a house, had somebody give me a phone call that completely steered the direction of my life in a different way. And I ended up moving back to Ohio rather than buying a house in Arkansas. In God's grace, he intervened and stopped me, and I'm very thankful for that. And it showed me how discontent I was and how I was trying to take control of matters on my own. In our discontentment, we cannot have a response that we demand something else and take things into our own hands. God is often doing something bigger through these circumstances that we can't realize at the time. So that is the first response, is a response that we demand something different and take control. The second response is Saul's response, the response of hiding from our circumstances. This response is a response of ignorance and hiding. Saul, when he hides, he becomes like the ostrich who buries his head in the sand to ignore what is going on around him. Saul doesn't tell his uncle about the word that Samuel gave him, and when the time comes for him to be publicly appointed king, he hides. Now, we might not physically hide ourselves, though we may at times out of discomfort. There are plenty of other ways we can have the same response that are not as obvious and outward. First, we might just ignore the issue or the circumstance and hope that it goes away. We try not to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to pray about it. And we just act like it doesn't exist. This isn't a helpful response. It's a response of ignorance and a response where we just either because we should take action, decide not to because we don't want to, or because the situation makes us uncomfortable, we just allow ourselves to shut down. The second thing we might do to hide is we try to escape. And usually we try to escape in our culture through entertainment. We might engulf ourselves in a movie or TV series where the problems are fictional and all resolved at the end of the episode. Or we might escape through things like video games where we have more control and um, in the end we are the hero that saves the day. These are two ways and two things that we can look to to escape from circumstances around us that we are discontent with. Or the third thing that we can try to do is just numb ourselves. Um, We numb ourselves to the issue either by drinking, by medication, by burying ourselves in one area of life like work or... Um, looking towards a certain hobby, and we bury ourselves in that area of our life so we don't have to think about the rest of it. These are all different ways that we can hide from our discontentment, and they're not healthy and God-honoring responses. We become like Saul when we hide. So the first response, we can try to control or demand something. We can hide from our circumstances. And the last response that we see in our passage is that we can reject what God has given us. And this is the response of those worthless fellows who are not happy about Saul being their king. They complain about it. 
They don't want the king that God has given them. They don't go along with the plan, and they really don't go along with it until the next chapter where Saul has to threaten them um, in order to get people to unify under his rule. A little bit of a preview. He cuts up an oxen, sends it around to everyone, and says, if you don't join me in battle, I'm going to come and do the same to your oxen. Suddenly everyone's like, okay, this is a king we can get behind, and they go with him to battle. But at first they rejected him. So while some people might try to take control or hide, some people will just complain incessantly. They reject what God has given them, and they just go through life complaining about it. And if we're not careful, this constant complaining and rejection of what God has given us and where he has placed us in life can easily turn into a rejection of God. If we allow discontentment to ruminate in our hearts, it can easily develop into bitterness. So these are some of the bad responses, I will say. Poor ways that we can respond when we see discontentment in our heart, when we see things around us that aren't the way we would like them to be for selfish reasons or for whatever, and we respond either by hiding, by taking control, or by just complaining. So now that we've talked about these sources of discontentment and some of the responses we can have, let's look to a better way. What is the proper response when we feel in our heart a desire for things to be different than the way that they are? And for a better way, we don't have any good examples in our passage. So, let's go to Jesus. Um, So often in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, we have pictures of individuals who live lives in certain ways that we can tell there's something wrong about that. That's not the way that it's meant to be. And in Christ, we have the perfect picture of somebody who lived a life in full compliance to God. This doesn't mean that Jesus was never discontent. In fact, we see some seasons and times in his life where he outwardly expresses that he is discontent with the way things are. So we're going to look at two of those scenarios. First, we're going to look at Jesus at the temple amongst the money changers. And then we'll look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So first, Jesus enters the temple. And this, past, this uh, story can be found in all four of the Gospels, um, specifically in uh, John chapter 2. Jesus enters into the temple, and he sees money changers who are taking advantage of individuals who have traveled from far away and aren't able to bring their sacrifices with them. So the way things were in Israel is during different festivals, whether it be Passover, um, which is the case here, or some other thing, other events in the life of Israel, people would travel from afar to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice at the temple. But they didn't have trailers. They couldn't bring their livestock with them very easily, especially if they were traveling 50, 70 miles. And so what they would do is they would travel to Jerusalem, and when they got to Jerusalem, they would purchase an animal, whether it's doves or a lamb, that met the qualifications of being... um, without blemish or scratch or scar, and they would purchase this animal to be sacrificed for their sins. Well, there were some people at the temple who saw this as a great money-making opportunity. People come all the way to the temple. They have nowhere else to get their animals from. They need an animal so we can charge exorbitant prices. The modern-day example would be going to a baseball game and paying $7 for a 50-cent hot dog that you could have made at home But because you're in the stadium and you can't leave and go get food anywhere else, they'll know you'll pay $7 for a terrible, nasty hot dog that tastes like rubber. 
This is what they were doing, and Jesus was not okay with it. He looked at the situation, and he said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, he knows the way it's supposed to be, and he quotes the Old Testament and says that my father's house is to be a house of prayer for the nations, not a place for money changing and for selling and buying things. It's not supposed to be a marketplace. And so he responds by driving people out of the temple and doing so rather violently. His response was a holy discontentment. He saw that things were not the way that God had designed them to be, and so he responded. And so when we look towards a better way, the first thing when we feel discontentment in our lives um, is to look towards, um, is our discontentment motivated by holy or selfish desires? And this is usually not something that we can sit there and just make the decision really quick. If we do... I mean, maybe it's just me. If I take 30 seconds to think about something, I'll be like, it's holy. My frustration is a warranted, holy frustration. It might not be if you take maybe a couple minutes to pray about it and ask God and really seek your heart. But when we find that it is really a holy discontentment, we need to ask ourselves, what can we do to bring about God's will in this situation? Maybe it's that we're discontent with sin in our lives. In that case, we need to ask this question, what can we do to bring about God's will? What can we do to eradicate the sin in our lives? We had the example of scripture of if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's a very violent response, just like Jesus' response was very violent. And not that our response always needs to be violent, but it definitely needs to be intentional and directed. So if there's sin in your life, what intentional directed steps can we take to remove that sin? Whether it's through accountability from removing ourselves from situations which we often sin in. What can we do to bring about God's will in the situation? Now again, this decisive, intentional, directed action comes when we are very convinced that our discontentment is a holy discontentment. Picture with me for a second a father coming home from an exhausted day of work, and he finds the kids are being loud and rowdy. Out of frustration, he shouts, my house is to be a house of peace and quiet. And he proceeds to drive his children out of the house, throws all their toys out into the yard so he can sit down and watch TV in peace. Now, this is the same exact action that Jesus takes in the temple. A similar quote, um, but the motivation extremely different. And so this is why taking this decisive, intentional, directed action to bring about God's will is only appropriate when our discontentment comes from holy desires. But if we find that we are discontent, and our discontentment is motivated by self-serving, selfish reasons, then we ought to consider how Jesus responds when he felt the temptation to be discontent with God's plan for him to go to the cross. The night of Jesus' betrayal, he goes to the garden with his disciples. And he is fully aware of what's about to transpire. He knows that in a few moments, guards will come, arrest him, he will go and be tried, and he will eventually be executed on a cross. It's in this moment that Jesus prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We can know that Jesus was feeling this temptation to be discontent because he requested that this cup be removed from him. 
when he asks for this cup to be removed, he's talking about the cup of suffering. He's asking the Father if it's possible by any means for him not to go to the cross and suffer. Now we hold that Jesus lived a sinless life, and so we have to therefore draw from a conclusion that there is nothing wrong with us praying and asking God to remove us from situations which might feel draw within us an uncomfortableness or a discontent. Jesus requests this from God, but he doesn't demand it. He's not saying, God, I'm not going to do this. I'm doing things my way. And so when we pray, we should follow Jesus' example. We should request, Lord, if it's possible, remove me from this situation. But at the same time, we need to have the humility that Christ had to say, not what I want, but ultimately I want what you want. Not my will, but your will. So what Jesus does is he takes his desires and he places them under God's will. The first step to do this is we have to frame the situation through an eternal perspective. This is where we have to come back to some biblical truths and recognize that our life is not about our comfort. The Westminster Catechism states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is not to create a comfortable and easy life. And so often our discontentment is because we desire a comfortable and easy life. So when we find ourselves in situations and circumstances that we're discontent, we need to frame it in light of eternity, and we can do that by asking questions like this. First of all, we can ask, how can this situation glorify God? How can the things that I'm doing, the way that I'm responding, bring glory to God? Second, how can I learn to enjoy God through this situation? There may be certain times where we go through difficult and challenging seasons, and rather than complaining, we can sit there and find that God is walking with us through them. And we can learn to enjoy his nearness in the midst of suffering. The third thing we can ask is, what could God be trying to show me or teach me through this situation? This is very challenging in the moment of things to realize. Um, normally, it's like five years after the fact. You look back on a season of life where you were really discontent, and you see, oh, God was doing this in me, so that way I would be prepared for what came next. But nevertheless, we should pray, ask God to show us what he is trying to teach us. He might be teaching us about our impatience or our um, need to have more things to look for idols um, out of possessions or out of people where only God can fill our needs. A fourth question we can ask to frame things in light of eternity is to ask how might God be using this situation to make himself known to those around me, through me. Sometimes when we go through situations, it's not about us. God might be using the circumstance in our life to show people around us more about him. He might be using it to draw people to him so they can have a saving knowledge of him, or maybe to show them ways in which they are living counter to God's will. So these are just four questions that I came up with that we can start to ask ourselves when we're in situations that we're discontent and begin to think through things in light of God, his plan, his world, and the way that he's working amongst us. 
Questions like these help frame our situation in light of eternity that we recognize that it's not all about the 76.2 years that we live or whatever life expectancy is. There's a bigger picture, there's a bigger plan going on beyond us in our time here on this earth. And God will use our time here on this earth to accomplish his plan. Questions like these also can help us connect deeper to what God is doing in us and through us. We could just simply say, not my will, but your will. And we kind of talked about that this morning of like, we can say words to try to get somewhere, like children who might just say, when you tell them, hey, you need to apologize. Okay, I'm sorry. And then they run along and do their thing and they don't really mean it. We can say, okay, God, yeah, not my will, but your will, whatever you want. And then we just really are the ostrich and bury our head in the sand. And we were like, we said the thing we need to say, but just saying it isn't, is really just like one step above just going and hiding from the situation. We need to walk through it with God. We need to allow the situation to happen um, to us and walk with God through it as we are experiencing it and not just kind of throw our hands up in the air and say whatever happens, happens. We need to actively engage with God as we are going through just uncomfortable seasons because these are often the seasons that God will do the most work in our hearts. So as we close our time together, um, we've kind of looked through a lot of things dealing with discontentment um, from this kind of unique passage in 1 Samuel of Saul becoming king and hiding from his responsibility. And I hope during this time that we've, you've been able to take some time and examine some discontentment in your own life. Find some areas where maybe you're not happy with the way things are. And we can kind of review here the first thing we need to do is ask, is this discontentment motivated by holy or selfish desires? If it's holy desires, then we need to ask, what can we do to bring about God's will in the situation? If it's selfish desires, the first thing we should do, or we can do, is pray for God to remove it, if that's what we desire. Sometimes it's really obvious that it's not a circumstance that can be removed. As we pray, we should frame things in light of eternity. We can do this by asking questions of how God is moving and working in and through the circumstances. And finally, we need to actively walk with God through our discontentment. Let's pray. Father, it can be so easy for us to look at things around us either by comparison, out of fear, or to have within ourselves selfish desires that lead us towards a selfish discontentment. I pray, Lord, as we live this week, that you would give us a way to, um, to walk through our discontentment by, ex by talking with you, through praying, through asking you what you're doing so that we don't just respond by taking control or hiding or complaining. Pray, Lord, that you would show us how to walk with you when we feel discontent, and that you would ultimately lead us towards contentment in you and what you are doing in our lives and in the world around us. In your name, amen.